as soon as my eyes opened, I was like, oh, sweet Lord, what have I done? From WBZ Chicago, this is The Trouble with Shannon Kaysen. I'm Shannon Kaysen. On The Trouble, I talk to people who've been in serious trouble or are still in it. Oftentimes, that trouble is the result of wrong priorities, not thinking it all through, or a simple bad decision. But what if doing the right thing is what got you in trouble? What if trying to save a life ends up being your biggest mistake? It was, I I just, I had a baby in the backseat of a car. That was nothing compared to this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this was searing, horrible, just, I felt like my body had been cut in half. Hmm. Which I guess kind of, sort of, it was. <laughs> Today we're talking to a woman who's gone above and beyond. Her name is Lisa McCray. Lisa's 52 and comes from a tiny town in Louisiana. Yeah, I come from a big family and we are all very close. My mom has nine brothers and sisters, so there's ten of them. I am the oldest of three kids. I was always the one that took care of my brother and sister. Had just a normal childhood, you know, middle-class family. Really? That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. That's That's a blessing. That's cool to hear. Growing up, life was great, and then I decided to get married right out of high school. I have six children. Lisa's always been a bit of a caretaker. She's a tiny person with a big heart. And her siblings and her children aren't all she's taking care of. I rescue dogs for two different humane societies here locally. I've also rescued raccoons. I have rescued a little bit of everything. As a mother, Lisa's a bit of a superhero. She even gave birth to one of her kids in the backseat of a car. She's tough. She's resilient. But there's a caretaker in Lisa's life who's always made sure she was protected. My dad is 6'5", 250 pounds. <laughs> Big dude, that's all right. And I'm four foot ten. I'm this little bitty thing. And 100 pounds open wet. So he has always been this big, strong man in my life, my hero. You know, of course, every little girl's daddy is their hero. But Lisa's hero had a weakness, a vulnerability, his heart. As a kid, he had rheumatic fever, which led to a life of heart disease. And by 2012, he was told he needed a heart transplant. And to watch him dwindle has been the most heartbreaking thing of anything in my life. I mean, he's still here, and I'm grateful for that. But to watch the suffering that he's gone through, the pain and the, the knowing that He can't drive anymore. He can't, you know, all of that. It's just heartbreaking. Now, if someone needs a transplant, there are two types of donors, living donors and deceased donors. Living donors are obvious. They're people who are alive, who choose to donate one of their organs. As a living donor, you can donate a kidney or a lung. You've got a couple of those. And in some cases, you can even donate a part of a liver pancreas or intestines really but it doesn't work that way with the heart those can only come from someone who's died a deceased donor and as grim as that is 
That's what Lisa's father was going to need. But before he even got to that stage, he'd have to take trips to see his cardiologist, where he had gotten a heart valve replacement a few decades earlier. So we were making trips back and forth, back and forth to Houston. He'd get checked out and tested, make sure his heart was still ticking the way it was supposed to tick. That meant they had to take long trips, nearly nine hours of driving, round trip, from Pollock, Louisiana, to the city of Houston, Texas, and back. It was a taxing commute, but she was helping out her dad, her hero. The trips they would take to Houston gave Lisa the opportunity to see what others in need of organ donation have to go through. And I was meeting all these people that needed organs. She met people in desperate situations. She would see people in pain, in crisis. I met one particular lady that needed a liver, and she was always there when we were there. It never failed. Just sitting out there waiting. It's just incredibly sad, incredibly sad, because she was a young woman with young children, and, and it touched my heart so much. It inspired Lisa. It changed her. She started looking for ways to get involved. Lisa and her father kept up the long rides to Houston for testing and to see his cardiologist, hoping for the best, but it didn't appear to be making a difference. Lisa's father's condition continued to deteriorate. Things were getting bad, and the doctors had some news. They said, okay, there's nothing else we can do except replace the heart. The decision for Lisa's father was a simple one. He won't have it done. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 74 years old, and he says that God's ready for him, that he's ready for God. But during this whole experience, Lisa began to feel like she had a new calling. I mean, I was always someone that would want to give and want to help people. I don't, I don't believe I ever would have considered donating an organ until my dad got sick and I saw so many people suffering. And while I knew I couldn't give my daddy a heart... I felt like I could help some of these other people. Lisa decides to become a living donor. I felt it was something that God wanted me to do, to be honest with you. Next on The Trouble, Lisa's mission begins, but not in a hospital. It starts on social media. In 2011, Lisa McRae powered up her computer and jumped on the internet. And everywhere you looked on the internet was share your spare. You can donate your spare kidney and save a life because you only need one of them. You know, it appeared that there weren't many problems. So I said, well, I can do that. You know, they can do it laparoscopically. I can be, these people are running marathons after two weeks of donating. Well, I don't run marathons now. I wasn't going to run marathons before, and I'm not going to run marathons after. (laughs) (laughs) Consider saving a life and share your spare. And after all that share your spare business, and Googling all over the internet. I saw a thing on Facebook. It must have been shared by a friend of a friend of a friend because I did not know these people. They were in California. It told a little bit about, you know, would you please help my mother and be tested? She's a grandmother. She's our mom. And the lady was 68 years old at the time that I donated. And Uh she wasn't real high up on the list. 
And I looked at my dad, and he was around about the same age, and I was like, I would love to have my daddy around for the next 20 years. So why shouldn't these kids be able to have their mom around for the next 20? You know, just really pulled at my heartstrings. So I decided to get tested. The test and Lisa was getting done was to see if she was a match for this person she'd never met. The potential recipient's family directed Lisa to a donor matching site that they were working through. They wanted to see if this woman's body would accept her kidney. Was it any hesitation since this was somebody you never met or knew? The only hesitation I had was how are my kids and husband going to deal with this? And initially they were a little, eh. I sat all my kids down. I have six children. So my first issue was, what if one of my kids needs a kidney? Are their siblings going to be willing to donate to them if some, you know, because I won't be able to then? And they all agreed, you know, and they all said, okay, if one of us needs something, we'll always be here for the other one. So you don't have to worry about that part of it. And they know once mama wants to help someone, mama's going to help someone. They know how I am. <laughs> but I really didn't have any hesitation whatsoever. I was all ready to go. I was all share my spare, you know. I mean, I, <laughs> I thought, I can help this person. Let me do it. I had no idea what was going to happen after. The ball is in motion. Lisa makes it sound so easy. But it's surgery, man. That's a little scary to me. Lots of unknowns. Now, were you researching? Because I'm thinking about myself. Like, uh-huh. I probably, I, I research everything. I mean, I get like uh, <laughs> something on my toe. And I'm asking my wife, I'm like, hey, look up toes. You're Google. <laughs> <laughs> and we Googling and I'm looking up everything. Something on my daughter, I'm looking at it. Like I probably would be Googling living with one kidney or something like that. <laughs> but were you researching? Were you looking into this? Yeah, but everything seemed to be positive. And I don't know if it's that I wasn't looking for the negative or if it just wasn't very much, because there's still honestly not a lot out there. Speaking of complications, because the transplant centers, they try to say it's not donor related. You know, all these things are not donor related. But through my research, I did not find very much negativity or people with complications at all. What about as far as the doctors and medical staff? Was there any conversation about complications or about how your body would would react afterwards? Uh, None. None whatsoever. I mean, they told us that 1% of people have complications and they are always very minor. What's the testing process? I don't even know how that works. Ooh-wee. It started out as a blood test here, and it was like 23 vials of blood. I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> and they took all this blood and they did a 24 hour urine test. Off it went, and it took about a week or two before they got the results back and said, you know, I was a potential match. A few weeks passed, and they were off to California. They put the patients through a rigorous process 10 days of intense testing, physical, psychological, financial. 
it's a real, real long process. While she was in California, Lisa met her recipient for the first time. She stayed at the home of the person she would possibly be given an organ to. Lisa said they treated her like family, took her around and showed her the city, Hollywood. After all the testing, Lisa returned home to Louisiana. For the next few weeks, she and the recipient were waiting to find out the results. What would have been your reaction if they called and told you that you weren't a match? I probably would have been, honestly, a bit devastated. Why? Because I really, really felt it was what God wanted me to do. So then you, the testing happens and, and they find out you are a match. Actually, I got the phone call and they they tell the donor before they tell the recipient that the donor is a match to give the donor the opportunity to back out or decide they didn't want to do it or whatever. They always offered to go in and say it was a medical reason just so you wouldn't feel bad, I guess, about saying you changed your mind. Okay. So they called me and told me I was a match, and I didn't hesitate. As soon as they called and told me, I called and told her, well, yeah, I'm a match. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was their reaction when you called? Ecstatic. They were, they were thrilled, and it was a very joyous thing for her and for me. I was excited. Lisa and her recipient talked on the phone daily and text each other all the time. They grew close. The family called them sisters, said they considered her part of their family. Lisa was starting to feel that way too. But not everyone in Lisa's real family, the one back home in Louisiana, felt that way. The night before I was leaving for the actual donation, I was going to be gone for 22 days. I've never been away from my kids that long. Okay. And my son, I went to kiss him goodbye. He was getting up for school, and I went to kiss him goodbye. And he said, Mom, don't go. I don't want you to do it. And I was leaving for the airport, and I was like, Baby, we, we've been through all the testing. We've done all this. Why don't you want Mama to do this? He said, I'm scared you're going to die. Wow. And that, that was probably the hardest moment was, was right then. This was Lisa's second trip to California, 21 days. A lot more testing, the surgery, and then some time to recover. It was early winter. Lisa didn't want to be away from her family during the holidays, so she squeezed it in, just after Thanksgiving, so she'd be home in time for Christmas. The plane touched down. Lisa was in California for 10 days before the surgery. Orientation, testing, all kinds of stuff. She stayed with the recipient and her family again. They continued to burn. Lisa even went with the recipient to her dialysis. And I literally ran out of that place. I, I took everything I had not to cry when I was in there because it saddened me so much to see all these people hooked to these machines. And I had to run out of the building and call my mom, and I was crying, sitting on a curb outside in the parking lot uh, because it broke my heart. And I think once I saw that, I was even, if I could have been even more 
sure of what I was doing, I was absolutely sure at that point. The day before the surgery, the story even got a little national attention. All right, it's time now for one more thing. I'm going to start with Andrea. (laughs) Okay, so what's the best gift you can give someone for Christmas? How about the gift of life? Uh, One woman, a 68-year-old mother of two, uh, needed a kidney transplant. Hmm. She got on the list in California. She thought it would take 8 to 10 years, which it typically does. Then she realized she could join a website. And luckily, a woman named Lisa McCrea, a 46-year-old mother and wife of a railroad employee from Pollock, Louisiana, decided to donate a kidney to Hmm. her. It was only 134 days after she got on that website. And now her surgery will be tomorrow, Friday, the 13th, an actual lucky day for her. So what a great thing to do. Luck, huh? Okay, so day of the surgery. What was that day like? What was the things going on in your mind at that time? By then, I was missing my kids pretty bad. So I was really ready to just get the surgery over with, get well enough to get back on a plane and get home. I was a little nervous about the anesthesia, but by then, I was just ready to save her. I just wanted to, to make her well. You was ready? I was ready. I was ready. And they give you the opportunity, even when they are wheeling you in to the operating room, they tell you, you can change your mind. We will go tell her there was a medical problem and that you can't donate. You have the opportunity to change your mind at any given moment. Are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. And they wrote yes across my stomach on the side where they were taking the kidney. And off I went to surgery. So there she is prep for surgery, lying on a gurney, being carted down the halls of the hospital for the last time as a woman with two kidneys. Coming up on The Trouble, Lisa goes under the knife, and her life will never be the same again. I don't remember anything else until waking up in more pain than I ever could have imagined. Stick around. What was their last words to you? That they loved me. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa McRae had flown halfway across the country from a small town in middle of nowhere, Louisiana to Los Angeles, California to help out a person she had met through a friend of a friend on social media just a few months earlier. Lisa felt she had received a calling to give what she could, to give a piece of herself, which she did, literally. For most living donors, this is typically where the story ends. The doctors pop out a kidney, get it to the waiting recipient, pops it in them. The donor gets a few days of bed rest, a few weeks of recovery time, and then they're back in action. But for some, that's not the case. And that's how things went for Lisa. The procedure took longer than expected. And when it was over, Lisa came to, to one overwhelming sensation. Pain, just really, really, really significant pain. As soon as you woke up, you felt it? As soon as my eyes opened, I was like, oh, sweet Lord, what have I done? 
I had a baby in the back seat of a car. That was nothing compared to this. <laughs> huh. You know, this was searing, horrible, just I felt like my body had been cut in half. Hmm. Which I guess kinda sorta it was. <laughs> The surgery turned out to be much more invasive than expected. Lisa says it was supposed to be laparoscopic, where they make the small incisions and use a tiny camera and instruments to see what they're doing. It's far less painful than open surgery and has a faster recovery time. But they didn't do laparoscopic surgery. Instead, they had to open her up to remove the kidney. What was the initial recovery like? Uh, the first couple of days, it's kind of fuzzy. They had me on a lot of really, really strong pain meds. And, I'm sure. You know, initially they tell you, you know, they want you to get up and walk that afternoon. They did not even try to get me up and walk. And if they would have, I wouldn't have done it. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was not getting up and walking anywhere. They could forget that. Lisa's stay after surgery was supposed to be in and out. Each morning they would come in and say, no, we're going to keep her another day. And I was like, what is wrong? Why Why am I having to stay all these days? And they said, well, you're just not progressing as quickly as we thought you would. So, you know, it's just for your own safety. Day after day went by, and Lisa wasn't feeling any better. She ended up staying in the hospital for nearly a week after her surgery. It was supposed to only be a couple of days. By the end of it, she was just glad that it was all over. She wanted to get back home for the holidays. Back to living a normal life. Only after she got back home to Louisiana, it became even more clear that something wasn't right. I realized that I wasn't able to eat. Like I said, I'm four foot ten, I weigh a hundred pounds. I can't afford to lose weight. And I lost fifteen pounds in the first two weeks after surgery. I kept trying to contact the hospital. They were very, very slow to get back with me. I mean, I would call and it would be days before I would get a response. So finally I went to my, just my regular general practitioner here at home. And then he sent me to a gastroenterologist. They used cameras and ultrasound to try to figure out what was wrong. Finally, Lisa had an answer for why she was in so much pain. They had cut my pancreas inadvertently. They never told me they cut my pancreas. Hmm. And, yeah, they say that's the one organ not to mess with. Well, that's not a lie. What does that mean, like my pancreas have been cut? What what complications does that cause? Severe nausea. I couldn't hold anything down. I didn't want to eat because I knew if I ate, I was either going to have horrible heartburn or I was going to throw it up. And just constantly feeling like you need to vomit even when you don't actually vomit. It was just miserable. I love it. And while Lisa was trying to figure out everything that was going wrong inside, things started to fall apart outside. I essentially became a hermit. I was unable to work. The nerve damage is, it's both legs, but it's mostly on my right leg. And driving, pushing a gas pedal or brake is is extremely painful. So I didn't drive a whole lot. I was unable to work, so I didn't have anywhere to go anymore um, other than doctor's appointment. My kids, it affected my kids because they lost the mom that they had. Hmm. That, that's the hardest part of all of it. They lost the 
mom that's jumping up and down in the stadium at the football game. You know, I would have to bring a lawn chair and sit outside the stadium because I couldn't climb in the stands anymore. I still can't climb in the stands. Hmm. I did for my son's graduation Friday, and I'm still hurting from it. Month after month, the physical pain continued. So did the emotional pain. Eventually, over time, even Lisa's marriage began to fall apart. My husband, he blamed me for our life changing so much. He blamed me, even though he, at the time, he supported me through donation. Once I came up with complications, it was all my fault. I should have done more research. I should have known better. And we ended up not being able to reconcile the differences. You know, it just didn't work. Six months after the surgery, Lisa returned to California for a checkup, and she found herself in surgery again. This time, it was to repair a triple hernia, as well as nerve damage that resulted from the donation surgery. The hernias were repaired, but the nerve damage might never be reversed. Throughout these early days, Lisa kept in touch with the person who received her kidney. She wanted to make sure that the donee was doing well. She named the kidney she was getting CK for Cajun kidney. It's a kind of thing people do when they do transplants. If they get a living donor, they name the organ that they're getting. And she would tell me, CK is doing great. My levels are so good, blah, blah, blah. You know, there were a couple of times where she wasn't doing so well and she had to go in and have biopsies. And that was, I mean, I can't even explain how, I don't want to sound selfish. I don't know how to say this. Um, It's not just a feeling of you're worried about her because, of course, you're worried about her. You just gave an organ to save her life. But you're also at the feeling of loss that what if I've gone through all this, put my kids through all this, and that kidney doesn't work for her. Hmm. You know, it's a strange feeling. But so far, so good. Did you ever tell your recipient or their family about the complications? I did. And me having complications pretty much put an end to the relationship with the recipient. And I don't know her reasoning for that, but... It felt as if she got what she needed and was no longer interested. Lisa was heartbroken. She had given this woman a new opportunity at life while simultaneously throwing her own into turmoil. Lisa was told she was family to them when she started, but no longer. As Lisa continued to try to cope with pain and depression connected with her medical complications, she found herself turning to the group that she had joined back when she first became interested in becoming a donor. For help, for information, for an empathetic ear to help her through. But while she was there, she ran into her recipient again. For some reason, she got into one of the kidney donor groups on Facebook. And she's not a kidney donor. I didn't know she was in the group. And I was discussing my complications on there. And then I get a message from her saying, Lisa, do you realize that by talking about these complications that you're going to keep someone from getting a kidney? You're essentially killing people by speaking of this. You shouldn't do it. It barely happens to anyone, so why would you want to talk about it? She really believes that I'm like the anti-donation person. I'm not anti-donation. I'm 
pro-information. You know, I'm pro-take care of the people that are willing to save another person's life. Don't just take their organ and throw them to the side. They're not a cadaver. They're a person. And she and I can't get on the same job with that. When was the last conversation? My birthday's in March. She called me back in March and wished me a happy birthday. And to tell me also that there was a possibility she was going to have to go back on dialysis. And Lisa's recipient wasn't the only one to turn on her. The online community that first helped usher her in now wanted to lock her out, shame her, shut her up. Told her she was turning people away from donating. Told her that what she was doing was dangerous. What's your reaction to that pushback? Was it anger? Was it... Was there any feeling of guilt? No, at that point, I, I was over the feeling guilty because people need to know. People have the right to be fully informed before they allow someone to take an organ out of their body. They need to know and deserve to know what can and does happen. And I felt like, if nothing else, I have to get that out there no matter what. And in a lot of the other Facebook groups, they're so cheerleading. And and I understand because I was cheerleading too. Everyone was like, chair your spare, which I hate, hate, hate that saying. (laughs) That's a big catch line and I don't care for it because it's not a spare. There were people that were really, truly, that have been ugly, not just to me, but to other donors in some of those groups. And I needed to create a safe place where people could speak about their complications and not have to worry about anyone saying, well, you shouldn't be saying that because you're costing people's lives. And so she did. She created a Facebook group called Living Donors with Complications. I created the Facebook group out of loneliness, out of thinking that I was the only person out there that had complications like this. Soon she was connecting with dozens of people who had been through what she had been through. And within a week we had 100 members. Then 200, 250. It's been nearly five years since Lisa McRae became a living donor. Her life was turned upside down but she's slowly starting to rebuild some of what she had before the surgery. But I'd be lying if I told you that the story gets better from here, that this was the turn in her life she needed to reset everything off in the right direction. It wasn't. And that day may never come. I've never been off of daily pain medication since I donated. How many procedures did you have to have in relation to your complications? Let's see. I've had the endoscopy, then I had triple hernia repair. And altogether, I'd say like seven procedures and surgeries. Over how many years? In December, it'll be five years. Financially, it's been horrible. Thankfully, I've been able to keep my house. I just bought the house about three or four months before all the testing started. But going from being a paralegal, making fifty dollars to $55,000 a year, to getting $750 a month disability is a real big jump. 
financially I'm ruined. What's a typical day for you now? I just recently started working part-time again at a law firm and I'm finding it so difficult to do even part-time just three days a week and it's definitely taken its toll on me. Now if a loved one one of your friends' family decided to be a donor. <laughs> what would you say to them now that you might not have said before? Hell no. Huh. And honestly, if I needed a kidney, I would never take one from a, a live human being. If it gets to the point that my kidney, because my kidney does not function as it's supposed to now, if it gets to the point that I need a kidney, I will never take one from a living donor. And I would never, ever, ever allow someone in my family or friends to do it. If I had to chain them up, I would chain them up. I would never let someone I cared about go through this. Do you worry about speaking out or turn other people away from being a donor? I do, because I have. I mean... We've allowed people in there that are considering donation into the group. And through hearing my story, there have been several people who have decided against donation. And I won't lie and say it didn't bother me a little bit. But then again, I mean, I traded my health for someone else's. I gave every bit of my health away to save someone else's life. A stranger at that. Would I do it again? No, I wouldn't. And that's, that's my honest, God, true feelings. And I can't feel guilty for how I feel about it. I don't tell anyone, don't donate. I never say that. I say, do your research. Make sure you have a financial plan in case you go through complications. Make sure you get everything you can in writing from the transplant center that they will cover any and all complications and get the insurance policy that's offered that will cover the medical. Because I'm $189,000 in debt right now for medical bills. I can't pay that. My credit's ruined due to medical bills. So people need to be prepared for how their life can change. Are you optimistic at all? that there'll be a day where these complications aren't a trouble for you? I pray for that. But honestly, after this long and this many procedures, no, I'm not optimistic that it's going to change. I'm afraid that I will be like this for the rest of my life. And the way I look at it is, okay, well, if I am going to have to be this way for the rest of my life, maybe the, the purpose behind it is so that I can warn others and help others who are, who are suffering through it know that they're not the only ones. Yeah, nobody wants to be alone. Yeah. No. No. I know it's changed you physically. Yeah. But more than physically, how has this experience changed you? Altruistically, I still 
it's still in me to want to help everyone. But realistically, I've realized that I can't help everyone. And after the way my recipient treated me, I think that kind of jaded me a little bit. And I hate that. I hate it so much. I'm a little more skeptic of people's motives than I used to be. It broke my heart, and it and it breaks my heart still that I, I don't look at the world the same way as I used to. I'm glad that my recipient as well, but I feel like I did my health for hers. I hate it. I hate that, that that's how I feel, but it is how I feel. Well, I want to thank you. Thank you for for being honest and appreciate you being a part of this. I appreciate you doing the story more than I can even express. Regrets. I always laugh to myself when I hear someone say they have no regrets. None? Really? I have regrets. I'm not going to mention any of them. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Lisa regrets giving her kidney. I don't imagine she wishes to harm anyone, but I don't think she wished to harm herself either. She felt led to make a decision to become a living donor. No one can talk her out of it. And she did it. That's honorable. But now she wishes she didn't do it. That's honest. Lisa is a living donor. No matter her regrets, no matter the opinions of some donor community, Lisa is a living donor, but now she maintains a Facebook page, Living Donors with Complications. She lives her life surrounded by friends, family, and love. I know this because she recently friended me on social media. I looked through her pictures and I liked one of her posts. It said, life is hard. We all have struggles, but we get up put the pain aside and do what we have to do with our heads held high. Keep your head high, Lisa. The Trouble is a production of WBZ Chicago. I'm Shannon Kaysen. The producers are Joe Dassault and James Edwards. The executive producer is Brendan Benazak. Special thanks to Candace Mattel-Khan, Stefania Gomez, Sophie Lalonde, and everyone who helped make this episode possible. We're looking for other stories of trouble, and I want to talk to you. We're at The Trouble Pod on Twitter, or you can shoot us a note at thetroublepod at gmail.com. Tell me about your trouble stories. I know you got them. We all do. <laughs> listen to The Trouble on Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to these things. And while you're there, please subscribe to it. It's free. And make sure you get a trouble your best rating. We'll see you next time. And whatever you do, try to stay out of it. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. 
Find NPR's Through Line wherever you get your podcasts.